Welcome to this sermon podcast from Myo Baptist Church, and thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that God's Word will be an encouragement to you and a reminder that the Bible has all the answers to living a successful and fulfilled life. Again, thanks for listening. We now join the service in progress. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 4. Let me read this passage, and then I'll share with you where we're going with this, and how relevant it is to what we face today. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 4, the Word of God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Not half-heartedly. Now, if you're going to love the Lord, it's got to be, you got to be all in. Verse number six, and these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And then he says in verse number seven, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, And wells dig, which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees, which thou plantest not. When thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. The Lord is stressing here the importance of transferring your faith to your children. And he says that in verse number 7, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And I mean, it's like a 24-7 teaching he's talking about, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. I mean, This is something, the transferal of our faith and our knowledge of God is to not be an accident. It is to be on purpose. It is to be thought through. It is to be planned out. It is to be scheduled in everything that you do. And then at the end, he explains that even with the Lord blessing you, if you're not careful, you can still forget the Lord. So, In this world, people have two options, to live for the Lord or not. That has been the battle of the ages, and that's the Lord's concern. He wants us to be committed wholly to him and not forget him. Now, that sets up an article that I read several weeks ago. And I put it in the hamper on my desk and kept it there because I wanted to share it with you. And I thought tonight would be a good time to do that. And the article is entitled, How Evangelical Kids 
can get their faith shaken on the first day of university. How evangelical kids or believers, Christians, Christian kids, can get their faith shaken on the first day of university. I read this article, and I think I told Brother Bob about it a week or so ago, that it's probably the best I have ever read as far as somebody describing how in universities they will subtly pull you away from God. They want you to forget God, and that is not an understatement. Sure, there's some Christian teachers in, Christian, in, in schools, in public schools, and, and there's a few in, in universities, but folks, the modern-day university is, is the temple of worldliness. It's the temple of secularism. It, it promotes it, and it has a disdain for all things Christian. Listen to this. I'm going to read you the whole article. It's not a long article, but it's not a short article either. This guy nails it. Look, I have experienced way, way back in the 70s when I went to LSU. I sensed a hostility towards my faith. It's only gotten worse. And I, I talked about this, preached on this a couple years ago, and Stephanie Beardsley, who was attending uh, cent, cent, Central... Central, what is it, Central, no, Central Michigan, you know, I I was leaving out something. Central, you know, she came up to me after I talked about this, she said, you got it right. She said, there is an open hostility, but it's subtle, and and kids get sucked into it. And I I realize to pursue some degrees, Christian kids have have to go to a secular university, or in some cases, kids have to go to a a public school. I understand that, and we're going to talk about that at the end. Because kids can do both and still grow up being faithful to the Lord. They'll be challenged, but they can be faithful to the Lord. But that's got to be done on purpose, okay? But listen to this article. This is written by Randall Rouser, dated December the 11th, 2018. He starts off. Let's consider the first morning at the university... For a hypothetical 18-year-old raised in a typical Christian church subculture, and you do understand that Christianity has and is becoming a subculture. It used to dominate our culture. It doesn't anymore. I mean, just look at television, look at movies. I mean, it's extremely carnal, extremely worldly. So he said, his name is David. David's Christian leaders were seeking to grow his faith strong. And so as he grew up in the church, he was taught a deep suspicion of many views contrary to his evangelical Christian convictions. For example, he was taught that the neo-Darwinian theory of biological evolution is wrong, and it is, but not simply that it is wrong. He was taught that it is a lie, and it is, that is a theory on its last legs which is sustained by little more than anti-Christian animus of those who propagate it. He still remembers the sober, sober words of his youth pastor. Don't let the evolutionists make a monkey out of you. David was also warned about atheism. Atheists, he was taught, are godless people who hate God and repress a deep anger toward God. And that's true. They don't want to live in accord with God's law, and that's why they reject belief in him. So they are merely fools, as it says in Psalm 
Now, with that background, David faces his first morning as a new student at a large public university, a school with more first-year students than people living in his hometown. When he arrives, David encounters a bewildering number of cultures and languages. That's the way it was on the LSU campus back in the 70s. I mean, I'm seeing people you know, from India and, and all the, you know, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, you know, and I'd never been immersed in that before. So it's a whole new world to that, especially to a small town kid. The Christian subculture in which he was raised is now inundated by a tsunami of alternative perspectives he hardly knew existed. These are not mere abstractions on the page of a Christian worldview textbook. These are beliefs and practices held by real flesh and blood people that he meets everywhere he goes, from the dorm to the classroom. And then the next portion is labeled Biology 101. David arrives early at his first class, Biology 101. Having been warned for years of the absurdity of evolution, he is gritting his teeth, seeking merely to endure the class in the hope of becoming a medical doctor someday. Immediately, David is surprised by Dr. Smith. She seems friendly and very intelligent, and she conveys a deep love for the natural world as she projects various images of nature on the PowerPoint screen. With surprise, David realizes that she also co-authored their textbook, a formidable 500-page book full of diagrams and pictures and charts. As she talks, Dr. Smith provides an overview of the syllabus, noting how they will study the properties of life, the differences between plants and animals, the flow of genetic information, and here it comes, how life evolved on earth. Dr. Smith ends the class with a humorous story of her uh, doing postgraduate research on the dental evolution of shark teeth. As class ends and David gathers his books, he experiences a degree of relief. Dr. Smith doesn't seem nearly as hostile towards Christianity as he had expected, but that first class has also planted a seed of doubt. Is Dr. Smith trying to make a monkey out of him? Is evolution really a lie? An absurdity sustained only by the anti-Christian animus of its defenders? Could a reasonable person interpret the origin of life in that manner? And if not, how does he explain Dr. Smith? I mean, this guy is nailing it. This is exactly how it happens. Then philosophy 103. Still, David uh, doesn't have time to process those questions now. He needs to get to his next class, philosophy 103. If David was nervous about biology 101, he is outright fearful of the next class. His youth pastor had warned him that the philosophy teacher, Dr. Braun, is an atheist. For David, that has conjured up images reminiscent of the 
a movie he saw with his youth group a few years ago, God's Not Dead. In that movie, the teacher, Dr. Radisson, challenged the students to defend the existence of God. If that happens here, David is not sure how he'll respond. Apprehensively, he takes a seat in the back as Dr. Braun saunters into the classroom sporting a black turtleneck, a ponytail, and a pair of Freudian spectacles hanging off his nose. Definitely a philosopher, David chuckles to himself. Dr. Braun takes a piece of chalk and writes on the blackboard, Why are you here? He then turned to the class with a disarming smile. Well, he asked, why are you here? To get a grade, some course credit, and what's that for? So you can get a degree? His eyes scanned the room thoughtfully, and why do you need a degree? So you can get a job, right? But what do you need a job for? Let me guess. To support a family. So your kids can grow up and go to the university and get a degree so they can raise a family. Dr. Braun pauses dramatically. But what justifies the whole circle? That is the question, isn't it? It's a famous question asked by the great philosopher Socrates. And it sets Us on another course, the pursuit of wisdom. That is philosophy, the love of wisdom. Over the next hour, Dr. Braun describes many of the great problems of philosophy. Why are we here? Is there meaning in life? How can we know anything? What is the good? And is there a God? Now, for you and I, we we know the answers to all those questions. But all this guy is doing is planting doubt in that young man's mind. Because he doesn't have the answers. He's just bringing up questions. And if the young man says, well, the Bible says, they will dismiss that immediately. The the, the Bible is, is a fantasy book. And it was made by people who wanted to repress women and repress minorities. That's what it's for. You know, and it's filled with errors and it's filled with contradictions. And so he will raise those questions again. Now, answer the question. Why are we here? I I don't know. Well, what's life all about? Now, I don't don't have any answers. And that's their whole point, to get you to doubt, to get these young minds to doubt. In each case, he briefly summarizes the various views that different thinkers had taken, all in pursuit of that overarching goal, the search for wisdom. David is entranced by the lecture. Before he knows it, the class is over. As he walks out, he is both intrigued and confused. Dr. Braun seems to be many things, but a fool is not one of them. That's David's first morning. Now think of four years of experiences similar to those. Experiences that erode the simple and austere categories that David had acquired 
while being raised with his Christian culture. From that perspective, it should hardly be surprising that many young Christians like David find their faith under serious assault at the university. That is so true. That, that is so true. Listen, what we're talking about is the contrast and the conflict of two world views. I mean, it started with Satan's fall from, from heaven and the opposition to God. There, there is the worldview of man without God, and there is the worldview of man who is here because of God. There is a struggle underway in American culture. And the universities of America today, for the most part, are the temples of secularism, the temples of humanism. And then the churches are, are, are the temples, if you will, of, of faith. The two perspectives are, are, you look at the world as a secular humanist, or you look at the world through uh, a biblical uh, glasses, and, and you see the world as either man-centered or as God-centered. And they really clash. And they're clashing more and more today. And sadly, I hate to say it, but the wrong side is winning. The wrong side is winning. Let let me read you this. The conflict between these two worldviews is made most apparent in their respective views of sex and sexual morality. Ever dawn on you that that what goes on at universities as they view sex is totally different than the way you and I view it? Why is that? Two different worldviews. One worldview based solely on the way man sees things and explains things, and the other worldview based on God and God's revelation to us. The secular humanist argues that sexual morality is an artificially constructed concept that is unfairly foisted upon society by religious institutions primarily and by unenlightened moralist. The humanist manifesto drafted in 1973, I think I got a copy of it in my office, condemn these intolerant attitudes often cultivated by orthodox religions and puritanical cultures that unduly repress sexual conduct. The manifesto went on to say that individuals should be permitted to express their sexual proclivities and pursue their lifestyles as they desire. This position appears most often under the label liberal, but it is ultimately the secular humanist worldview. And it is today's universities, again, for the most part, somebody's going to come up to me with an exception, but overwhelmingly, Today's secular universities and colleges are promoting secular humanism and they are vehemently opposed to Christianity. They see us as being actually repressive. They see us as the reason for America's problems today. Secular institutions pose a real threat to a person's faith. Secular institutions are hostile. They're outright hostile, and seek to destroy faith today. And secular institutions, sadly, have the resources to be able to put up the fight that they're putting up. So I would say to parents today, 
you need to be very careful and very cautious. The enemy is formidable. They are undaunting. They are unrelenting. It is the battle of the ages. And a lot is at stake here. You know, as, as we see ourselves progressing in secular humanism, uh, this life around us is not getting better. You know, it's not getting any better. Politics is not getting better. Society is not getting better as secular humanism takes over. It's not getting better. So there's, there's, it's not good for our country. It's not good for individuals that, that buy into it. So I would say to parents especially, you've got to be very, very cautious. My first choice in education today, and that was my degree. My degree was in, in education. Then I got a, my master's was in um, educational administration. And I, I have studied Christian education at length. I have studied secular education, and I have been a participant in both. I have walked the halls of secular humanism. I have walked the halls of, of Christianity. My first choice, if a parent comes to me and says, what about how do we educate our children today? My first choice would be, and this is based on many years of experience, my first choice would be Christian education homeschooled. That's my first choice. The second choice would be a Christian school. And, and, but sometimes that doesn't work. And by, by the way, don't let anybody tell you that homeschooling does not produce quality education. That is a, Now, done poorly, yes, it's poor. Done right, there is not a better education. And I can give you all the facts, the stats you want. I mean, now, some things I can't argue with you because I'm ignorant. This one, I'm not ignorant. This was my bread and butter for so many years. And uh, so I, I, I know, I'm not bragging, but I know my stuff here. A Christian, a, a, a good Christian homeschool education, it, it, done right, and that's the, the key, done right will give a, a child a superior education in any way you want to measure it. But that's not always practical. It's, it's not, it's sometimes, it just doesn't work. Now, the good news is, I know of kids that have gone through public schools, and in some cases, public universities, um, but in most cases, just public school, and then on to Christian colleges, that have made it. But it's not by accident. It's not by accident, because you're, you're putting children in an environment that is hostile. And if they're not, look, if you're not, the Bible says, God says, if you're not for me, you're against me. There, there's no middle ground. They say, well, they're neutral. No, 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 no. It's wrong not to pray over the meal before you eat, but that's what they do. You know, it's, it's wrong not to pray when you start the day. No, it's, it's hostile. So the, the good news is that in the case where parents, for whatever reason, have to send their kids to a public school, I would recommend the following. Six things, real quick, we're done. I've noticed through the years that the, the number one factor by far as to how kids turn out is not so much the school they go to or the education they go to, but it's the parents. It's the parents. Because I have seen bad parents put kids in Christian schools and it didn't work. I've seen bad parents try to homeschool and it, it didn't work. 
I've seen good parents have their kids in public school, and it worked. I mean, they, they came through with their faith strong. And so, number one, faith must be genuine, transparent, and authentic in the home. It's got to be real. It's got to be genuine. It's got to be sincere. Kids have got to see their mom and dad truly love the Lord. They're not playing games. They're not acting one way at church on Sunday and, and some other way on, on, on Monday. They, they know that their parents' faith is genuine and it's real. And if it's not genuine and real, you can put your kids in Christian school all you want, and that ain't going to cut it. I, I mean, I know what I'm talking about here. Number two, both parents must be proactive and teaching uh, and, and living their faith. I mean, you, you've got to be teaching. I mean, the Bible says that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 7, teach them diligently. I mean, the primary teacher in any child's life is not the teacher at a Christian school, the teacher at a public school. The primary teacher is mom and dad. And they've got to understand that. They've got to be proactive. They've got to be constantly pointing out the glories of God and the world around them and, and the problems that come that you see all about you when, when you, know, you see heartache and heartbreak and you're telling your kids, why is it that way? Why is this family, why are they having so many problems? Why is that child in trouble? You know, you're constantly teaching. You're constantly pointing it out. Parents should then also, I, I believe, limit involvement in secular schools. Look, you know, we don't have a choice for whatever reason it might be that you're going to have to go to a public school. Within you, you need to make sure that the influence there is as, as limited as is possible. And you have to be on top of that, which brings into point number four. Parents should monitor teachers, textbooks, programs, athletics, and friends in school. You, you got to be on top of it. You, you got to be involved. You got to have your, your, your nose in their business, if you will. And, you know, if somebody gives you the idea, well, no, they got their own personal life to live. No, God gave them to you for a reason, you know. And you, you need to know anything, everything. And you got to snoop. And you got you just got to be on, on top of it. Parents also, number five, should be engaged and speak up when their kids are asked to participate in something unbiblical. You got to be willing to speak up and say, uh-uh, he's not going to that or she's not going to that. Or no, they're not taking that, that class. Not going to happen on my watch. And then lastly, parents and children must be actively and joyfully involved in church. Got to be actively, faithfully, joyfully involved in church. Not here because you got to be. Not here to impress somebody. But no. Church is your happy place. Church is the place where you're with your, your Christian family, your Christian brothers and sisters. It's the place where you hear the truth. You hear the truth of, of God's word. You, you, it's not the philosopher trying to get you to question everything for which he has no answers. He only has more questions. But no, you, you know what you believe. You know what your family believes. That's why, we'll close in Deuteronomy 6.6. 6, and these words which I command thee, which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. That tells me that the teaching of, of faith to your children is, is 24-7. 
and everything that you do. It's just, it's 24-7. And again, let me make it clear. If somebody came to me, a, a young couple came to me, their child has reached school age year, uh, years, you know, they say, what should we do? I say, well, I would highly recommend homeschooling with a good uh, Christian curriculum, if you're able, if you're able. Well, what if we're not? Well, then I would recommend a good Christian school. Uh, is there one around here? Not anywhere close, so that's kind of ruled out. And then number three, so what's my third option? Well, you know, if you've got to put them in public school, put them in public school. And the good news is I have seen kids go to public school and turn out fantastic. Uh, most of the kids, mo- most of the faculty or staff that work at the, the Wilds in North Carolina, uh, I think, all, and it's a big staff, you know, with lots of kids, I think most all of them go to uh, Brevard High School, you know, secular school. And those kids have grown up to serve the Lord. I mean, they're serving the Lord today. But their parents are exceptional. Their parents are people of faith. And it's real and it's genuine. And they're on top of it. And those kids have grown up to be uh, Ken Collier's kids. He, He ran that camp for a number of years. I think he's still running it. In fact, I think he's running the whole organization now. Uh, I've met his sons. His sons are good friends with my boys. They all went to Brevard High School, and they're, they're, they're doing great. That's not my first choice. But sometimes, you know, you've got to do what you've got to do for whatever reason. And I would say the good news there is if you've got to do it, follow these principles that I laid out tonight, and uh, God can bless and God can bless you. But as we leave, that article, that man describes it perfectly. Because you go in with these, the kids go in with these preconceived notions, and they have been taught right. But they get in there and say, well, this, this guy, man, he wrote this textbook. You know, this big old textbook. That my professor wrote that. And, you know, he's not a dummy. She's not a dummy. You know, and, and immediately they start, they start questioning. And it's the, it's, the, it's the battle of the ages. Who was it that wrote a book a while back, The Battle for the Mind? I forget the author's name, the Christian author. It's called The Battle for the Mind. This is exactly what he's talking about. So the dangers and the threats are, are out there. All the more reason for our light to shine brighter. Because you go that route, it's going to have consequences. You go that route, I mean, if you, by that I mean you, if you buy into secular humanism, if they do get you to doubt to the point where you lose your faith, there's going to be consequences, and it's not going to be good by any measurement you want to measure it. That guy did an excellent job. I read that article, and I thought, man, i got to share that with folks, and I figured tonight was a good night to do that. So thank you for being here. Let's stand as we are Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and that you were encouraged by God's Word. If you have any questions about Mayo Baptist Church, please contact us anytime. You can find contact information on our website at myobaptistchurch.com. Thanks for listening.